0: I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris
1: Hedges. I'm Rosa
0: Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D. Public Enemy, Prophecy, Rage, and this is Newsbeat. Technically, it's this week in social justice, presented by Newsbeat. But semantics, right? Command Manny faces live and direct from sunny Brick City, New Jersey. Speaking to my brethren scattered throughout the globe in secret, undis- undisclosed bunker locations. Mr. Rashid Mian, managing editor of both Newsbeat and This Week in Social Justice, and Christopher T. Like, Mr. Uh, T.
2: <laughs> you, finally, you finally pronounced my last name correctly. I, I've been I've trying
0: played. a number of years, but now that you've legally
3: changed it to T, to stop all the confusion, <laughs> uh, that's helpful. Chris, so you and- both have legally changed your names, except for me. I guess I'm next. Uh, you are next. Uh, you are next, and I'd like to hear by the end Any of the show. Any recommendations. Uh are welcome. Shady we talked about mm-hmm. that. We did. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um
0: yeah. Uh, Rashid what your mama gave you? There's a lot of Rashad. options. Well I got Rashid
3: Wallace all throughout high school so.
0: That's true. You you know that might work and yeah. you might actually uh get it's like it's I was going to I was going to speak about a similarity of my government name with a famous baseball player but I won't because then it gives away uh, it 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 it'll kill the allure the mystique of uh, my fake name. Anyway, uh, so Chris uh, is also the editor in chief of Newsbeat and the uh, uh, editor in chief of this week And social justice. I'm giving people time to trickle in. We have such a short uh lead up into the show that we do visually with um uh, on on the social networks every Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, but then we take the audio, we throw it on the podcast feed. So you might be listening to us on the podcast feed. Peace and love to you. We're also doing this live video show this week of Social Justice, actually live and video on our social networks every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Or if you're watching us maybe on the replay on one of our networks, uh, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitch, et cetera, uh, realize that we're also actually podcasters and we have a very good social justice-oriented podcast called Newsbeat. So there's a cross-pollination happening here every week. uh, And I say that to introduce ourselves, give some people time to trickle in. Uh, I'm going to have a segment at the beginning, uh, what bothers Manny this week, so that we can kill some time. It's very, very important. That wasn't in the
2: script. That was not in the script, though.
0: No, no, I'm not going to do it right now. I mean, I was thinking about, like, the... uh, Shouts to Kitty Bradshaw in the building. Yes, indeed. Uh, Superstar uh, out there in those Twitch streets um i was going to like today i was pondering uh the overdramatization of the fact that an old lady swallowed a fly so we assume that she's going to die
3: that and this seems- is and this probably took up a good part of your afternoon
0: right cuz then she eats all the other things to kill the fly yeah. the spider to catch the fly and but when you first start the song all she's done is swallow the fly you can't predict the course of events that's going to lead to her swallowing a horse and yes at some point she, her, her stomach will burst her innards will you know explode so but in the beginning you assume she's going to die simply from swallowing the fly is now this the, I, is this
3: the same is this related to the Christmas book where the old lady swallows a, a bell I, I don't know don't. I
2: don't know what Christmas book that is for, for sure. toddlers come on guys
3: come on so I've had
0: quite a few toddlers and I don't know about that one. We will we will research this and get back to you. Obviously, everyone is going to uh, want to know about it. In the meantime, in between time, now that Kitty Bradshaw is here, all is well in the world. Uh, this is this week in social justice, presented by the Newsweek podcast crew, uh, streaming live Wednesdays at eight PM. Uh, we do have special guests this uh, evening, a very guest-packed show. Actually, more guests than we thought, uh, more topics than we thought. So we're going to keep moving. Uh, this show brings you certain things that are happening in the world of social justice that you might not see on your cable news networks because they're engrossed in, you know, very top level national flashy stuff that you hear over and over again. Uh, so we bring you some of the inside baseball as it were, uh, super important Two guests tonight, uh, who's setting them up. I don't even know.
2: Uh, so, um, so first up we have Emily Widra, a research analyst at prison policy initiative who just co-wrote a report, uh, basically, um, showing just how dismal the rollout of vaccines within uh, jails and prisons has been. And uh, that's a subject, obviously, we've been covering. Uh, well, Emily was Emily was also on a, a previous episode about that topic. Mm-hmm. So I we're, we're really uh, happy girl. to have her.
0: Shouts uh, to her for coming on and breaking it down for us. Obviously, the, uh, well, we'll talk about it, but we had, we yeah. were very early on the, uh, the issue of what, of how the uh, prison population was going to be affected by, Uh, COVID-19. And uh, we were right and we were early and we don't want to be right about things like that, but we are. Uh,
3: Next up. Yeah. Stick around for the second half of the show because we're going to have Daniel Nakanian and he's the founder and editorial director of The Appeal Political Report. Um, Anybody who follows criminal justice and social justice issues, you're probably familiar with The Appeal. They do a lot of great uh, work covering these issues. And Daniel's going to be on to talk about uh, Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner's uh, decisive victory uh, last night in his reelection bid um, to remain DA in Philly. So definitely check that out because it has a lot of uh, local and national importance.
0: Right on. That was the Philadelphia District Attorney primary,
3: right? Is that right? The primary? No, it's just it's just the yeah, yep, yeah. It was the, it was the primary, and it's uh, it just it, it was it's showing the sort of the even among Democrats, which Krasner is, there's still this tough on crime, um, you know, aspect to it. And the police unions backed the opposition, the, his, his uh, opponent. So there's definitely a lot of things in there with uh, social justice issues, racial justice. So we'll get into that with Daniel.
0: Good. I always enjoy that topic because I always uh, think it's really important how much we should pay attention to the fact that district attorneys, the idea of a progressive district attorney can make a lot of changes in the criminal justice system we talk about criminal justice Mm -hmm. we often look at the president to do some things or the no senators and they're all cuckoo birds uh for the most part um maybe not numerically but probably yeah probably numerically they're all cuckoo birds probably like status uh statistically but uh they can't make Often as much change as a local DA can And we vote for our local DAs in a lot of cases So it's a super important topic, I'm glad we're talking about it Uh, That being said uh, Again, thanks to Kitty Bradshaw for tuning in We do have some interesting stuff Uh, Kitty, you're going to learn some things and you'll probably be horrified We're also going to talk about UFOs So there's that (laughs) (laughs) Deadass UFOs It's common, it's important You don't want to miss it For now, our News Beat Bites (laughs) yeah 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 so i'm starting and i'm well prepared this time because uh, i live in newark new jersey uh which is the largest city in uh in new york uh, in new york in new jersey the largest city in new jersey newark it has become the first city uh, sorry latest city but probably the first in new jersey to launch the universal basic income program there is our esteemed mayor mayor raz baraka Raz
1: Baraka the is the mayor of Newark, Newark mayor New Jersey's largest, New Jersey, largest city. Many faces, Man face, like the mini faced God, in face the building. The
2: building. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was incredible. <laughs> right out the gate. Right out the I, gate.
0: I live in Newark, New Jersey, and uh, of course, uh, I'm,
3: a, uh, you know, one of
0: my guys. 38- not
3: miss an opportunity. He does not gate. miss a single opportunity.
0: He's a DJ, so shouts to Raz Baraka, our <clears throat> honorable mayor. Uh, As you can see, city officials on Monday launched a two-year pilot program, which will eventually provide cash payments to some 400 low-income residents, making New Jersey's largest city the latest place to embrace guaranteed income as a way to bridge the wealth gap. Mayor uh, Baraka said, we want to show the world that we give our residents freedom of choice and recognize and affirm that inherent dignity. Uh, They will make decisions that will help us to build a stronger and more resilient city. I've been in Newark for about four years. I've been very impressed <clears throat> with how they're uh, working to bring the city to the uh, sort of forefront of the idea of, of some progressive values, uh, social justice work, uh, police reform. Uh, and of course now um, universal basic income, uh, your thoughts, gentlemen, I know we've been talking about this issue behind the scenes, obviously for a while. Uh, what does this mean for the city and for you know the larger um, you no know, issue?
2: I mean, I, th- I think, uh, in, in the few uh, municipalities that have done this, I believe that the statistics show just how beneficial it is. Mm-hmm. I believe that it shows more people ended up getting jobs because they have money for transportation. Yep. They have money to, uh, for sitters to watch their children. Um, so it's fantastic. Fantastic. Cool.
0: All right. Shouts to Mayor Baraka uh, for that initiative. And we'll follow up more to see if that's uh, how, you know, how that affects things out here in Newark, New Jersey. Once again, let me remind you that
1: Raz Baraka is the mayor of Newark, New Jersey's largest city. city. Many faces like the many face God in the building. building,
0: building. Much less uh, comical. uh, Is this issue, Rashad? This is your news bite. Go ahead, sir.
3: Yeah, I'll keep it quick because we got Emily coming up, but um, I just wanted to uh, call attention to something that's happening in the United States as we um, observe you know, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and that's the solidarity and this sort of growing movement um, connecting um, Black Lives Matter and, ra- and racial justice protesters with um, Palestinians here and Palestinians abroad. There's been a long history of solidarity between... Um, the two groups in the US and, and Palestine. Sometimes you'll see um, uh, murals of people killed by police in the United States in Palestine. Um, so th- this has been happening for a long time. And we've also um, seen a lot of protests recent in recent days throughout American cities, um, you know, advocating for justice for Palestinians. So um, as you're following along, following this story, I just wanted to call attention to sort of the solidarity between the two groups. And We'll see where that um, where that takes us. Obviously, we've seen the racial justice protests um, had a lot of impact um, last last summer and into this year in terms of some police reform. So we'll see what happens uh, now. Uh, very interesting
0: uh, connection there. I think we're going to delve into it a little bit more. And uh, so see, uh, we have a clip. Do we have? We're going to not do the clip.
3: Oh yeah. Oh, if we have time, I don't know if we have time because of Emily, but um, no, I'm Corey Bush, Bush, right there. Uh, Go ahead. C- Congresswoman Cory Bush had a impassioned speech on the floor and I think it starts at 2.09. Manny, um, and if you could click, it's about a minute long. All right, let's go.
1: We're here to save lives. Bassam's loved ones and his community, our St. Louis community, sent me here to save lives. So we... That means we oppose our money going to fund militarized policing, occupation and systems of violent oppression and trauma. We are anti-war, we are anti-occupation and we are anti-apartheid, period. If this body is looking for something productive to do with $3 million, instead of funding a military that polices and kills Palestinians, I have some communities in St. Louis city and in St. Louis County, that they, where that money can go where we desperately need investment where we are hurting where we need help let us prioritize funding there prioritize funding life not destruction so today we remember Bassam we remember his resistance in the face of militarized police occupation as a St. Louis and a, a St. Louisan and a Palestinian we lost him to a health crisis but we remember his words today until all our children are safe we will continue to fight for our rights in Palestine and in Ferguson. We stand with you in solidarity. St. Louis.
0: So yes, again, a great topic, uh, a really interesting connection there. We're going to delve into this a little bit more, but as you all know, who's, who are watching live and following up, we're putting the links to the stories that we're talking about in the, uh, the comment section. Check them out, follow up, understand that there's an interesting connection there that ties into a lot of the issues that we talk about on a regular basis. Uh, so we'll come back to that. Christopher, on to you, sir.
2: Yes, real quick. I just wanted to, uh, call attention to an investigation that the Guardian just published. And as in our last, uh, show, Rashad had mentioned how, you know, after George Floyd had died, uh, the Minneapolis Police Department published a short press release titled, quote, man dies after medical incident during police interaction. Obviously, we know, we know what happened. It had no, it had no mention, obviously, of the knee. That was on his neck for over nine minutes Sure. or any, or any of the other torture. And, and so basically this, this investigation, though, took a look at other cases uh, focusing on California, and they found uh, more than a dozen with very similar traits mm-hmm. where, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, just taking one of them, a uh, 23-year-old uh, named uh, Juan Armstrong uh, died in Santa Rita Jail. Uh, back in 2018, and the sheriff reported it as a drug overdose. Uh, there were no drugs. Um, it made no mention uh, of what the autopsy report found, which was that prior to his death from a- asphyxiation, he was strapped to uh, one of these body suits that basically pressed him like a, like a pretzel uh, and then put a spit mask over him, and that's how he died. So uh, it goes on and on. It's just an incredible, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously incredibly disturbing, but it's really important uh, for a light to be shown on this, not just to hold the, the, uh, the police accountable uh, for, for these deaths and for accurately reflecting what happens during these confrontations, but also for journalists. Um, There's a, there's another case in there where there was an altercation at a family barbecue between a 20 year old and a 16 year old. And the police showed up and just started firing and they killed the 20 year old and told them, told the media that, that it was, it was a man trying to kill a minor with a knife. And once the dust, you know, sort of clears, there was, there was no knife, there was no knife, but this person is forever crucified throughout all different types of media outlets as a, a knife wielding maniac who was trying to kill a kid. So, um, you know, the, the lesson for journalists, obviously, is you don't take what is fed to you and you question things and you investigate, you know, and when there's a mistake, you correct it. So uh, we're going to okay. share that link. And then real quick, the second thing is just is sort of a follow-up, and we want to try to keep pressure on the U.S. museum system. We did a piece uh, last show, horrific uh, story, but it's tied to in 1985, uh, the Philadelphia Police Department dropped the a bomb two one to two bombs on top of a, a house incinerating uh, 11 uh, people alive uh, five were children and they were all activists of a group called move uh, just recently it turned out that the that the bones of a 12 year old who was burned alive by the police ended up being used as a teaching prop in some ivy league schools mm. and this is the most recent fallout uh, on the anniversary of the bombing, which was last Wednesday, was May 13th. What? The mayor came out and admitted that he had, or he he stated to everyone that he had just found out that the, the health commissioner had taken other family members bones. And instead of returning them to the family members for either burial or, or just for them to have, he decided to just incinerate them himself. So he, he told an underling to toss it into the incinerator. And so now he stepped down. And just in recent days, it's still evolving. But now they're saying they might have found another box with some people's remains in it. Uh, they don't know who, who it is. And so they're going to try to maybe give that back. So, uh, you know, we're going to stay on top of the story. And, and as we learned from that show, there are over half a million bones and other remains of uh, Native folks. Within the U.S. museum system, there's there's uh, tens of thousands of body parts, including you know thousands upon thousands of skulls of of uh, black and brown folks, and many of them uh, formerly enslaved. So it's yeah. just horrific, horrific stuff. But we need to we need to continue to talk about it to keep the pressure up. Ab- so
0: absolutely. And those who are interested in that but didn't see our other show, please do go back in the archives. We talked about this in depth. We had great conversation, great guests about the entire. Uh, situation, and we plan on having more. So stay tuned. We're following this story. It's a really horrific thing. And also, I sense a pattern here that when we hear something horrific like that, that it's a pattern here, (laughs) you know what I mean? That it's something that's been happening when we talk about, uh, you know, uh, the lies that they put out in the police report about what happened to this, you know, gentleman who suffered a medical snafu, and, you know, unfortunately perished, and you find out that that's really just a plain old cover-up for actions that they took. There's a pattern there. So, you know, um, what I like, again, brings it all full circle to the fact that local DAs play an instrumental part of making sure that these things don't happen, because as we see with uh, um, the latest uh, of uh, ongoing string of uh, police-involved killings of uh, young black men, that DAs feel like the police... Uh, are justified in their actions so there's yeah. a lot to back here
2: yeah and just one last quick note on that and obviously you know uh, not every police officer is a, is a mass murderer like uh, some of these some of these people um, sure. um but it also speaks to you know the police being used to respond to what a health uh you know officer should probably respond to i mean you know uh, a lot of mental health undiagnosed mental health and and diagnosed mental health issues and we've talked about this on previous shows too so you can go back and listen to some of that it's almost
0: like solutions exist <laughs> oh my god it's so weird anyway let's keep it going y'all uh this week is social justice resetting the room as we do on clubhouse by the way are we going to do clubhouse tomorrow um, if we're around we'll do a follow-up to this on clubhouse if you do follow us on clubhouse follow me on clubhouse uh we'll do a follow-up to this show kind of like a post-game report one o'clock eastern uh check us out uh moving along uh we want to uh Welcome, our phenomenal guest. Let's go.
3: All right. Uh, We're lucky to have on uh, Emily Woodrow of the uh, Policy Prison Initiative um, for tonight's show to talk about uh, vaccines inside jails and prisons. Emily, thanks for joining us.
4: No problem. Glad to be here.
3: Um, so, uh, we, we're going to point everybody to your new report that I think was released today. Um, and I know that's where it, when it landed in my inbox. Um, but Emily, can you just remind the audience about some of the conditions inside jails and prisons during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, and the infections compared to the general population? I just want to sort of lay out some context for people if they don't, if they don't recall what's been happening.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think some of the, um, two most pressing statistics to think about when we're we're talking about COVID behind bars is that the case rate is almost four to five times higher in prisons than it is in the general US population. So we're talking about more than double, like four to five times higher. That's huge. And the, the same thing is true of the mortality rate from COVID. So people in prisons are dying at two to three times uh, higher rate than those who are outside of prison. So we're seeing sort of the effects of COVID that we are experiencing in the outside happening sort of in a microcosm under a magnifying glass amplified in prisons and jails. Um, so, you know, that's that's been happening, obviously, since the beginning of last year. Um, there's been, you know, over uh, 400,000 cases in prisons um, there have also been over 100,000 cases among prison staff um, and a couple hundred deaths of staff. Um, so this is kind of a, something that's definitely still running rampant um, in prisons and jails across the country and has been uh, pretty catastrophic behind bars.
2: It's horrifying. And, and we're later on, we're going to play a part of the episode that um, you helped us out with, uh, Emily, in the past uh, about this. Um, I'm wondering, so you went through some of the, of the, of these statistics that, that you found, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this disparity in vaccination policies, um, and the harm specifically, uh, from not having a national standard.
4: Absolutely. So I think, um, As we often see policies across state lines and even across county lines within a state. So if we're talking about jails, those are county level. um, The policies are always very inconsistent and tend to differ on a lot of key elements, whether it's talking about um, getting the regular seasonal flu vaccine out or if it's something uh, more timely uh, like getting the COVID-19 vaccination out. Um, So we've seen that only about 10 states had incarcerated people specifically identified as part of their first phase of the vaccine rollout. So all the other states either had it sort of ambiguously or in a later stage. Um, And so, you know, our thinking at prison policy is that um, if we're going to be vaccinating people early who are living in um, congregate housing, living in dense areas, um, unable to socially distance, uh, like nursing homes or college dorms, then prisons and jails should certainly be up there in that first phase. So initially we only saw about 10 states identifying them as in that first phase, whereas about 26 states offered vaccinations to corrections staff in the first phase, um, which I do think was a good plan. I think that they are certainly at high risk as well for working in these environments. Um but you can see sort of that disparity between like, oh well we'll vaccinate the staff and that will somehow create a barrier to protect the incarcerated people instead of us actually just offering them the vaccine early on. Um and that's something that's been really challenging to follow across the country because it, it's changing, it's evolving, which is good. Um, but it's also hard to track. So, you know, we are also seeing things sort of changing like this week. So in, in Cuyahoga County in uh, Ohio, you know, they initially had only 5% of their uh, the people in their jail were vaccinated. And just this week, they start to offer it to everybody in the jail. And we're talking about like mid May now, like, yeah. you know, almost everybody is eligible over the age of 12. So, so what are we doing just rolling that out? Um, so, yeah, those policies have not been very consistent or very structured
3: yeah, Emily, and you you obviously mentioned how there's still so many more um, incarcerated people that need to get vaccinated. So can you just talk about sort of just like the, the built-in harm inside these institutions um, when it comes to infectious diseases, especially the coronavirus? Because people, experts have been warning about this from day one that this was declared a pandemic, but we still let it uh, fester inside many of these institutions. Can you just talk about just some of the inherent problems inside these places?
4: Absolutely. I think you know there's two levels at which I think we can answer that, and the first is sort of historically. And thinking about historically, people in prison are um, tend to receive inadequate health care uh, to begin with. Uh, they're generally in overcrowded facilities where medical staff don't have the time or the capacity to see everybody who's having a medical problem, um, and and that was an issue long before uh, COVID came on the scene. So so that's kind of the environment that we've been walking into historically, as well as there have been numerous situations in which incarcerated people um, have been harmed by either like experimentation or medical testing inside of prisons. So we're, we're looking at a population that's, that's both being harmed by this and also suspicious of the medical system uh, in the facilities that they're in. So then the other part of that is that looking at the people who are incarcerated. Um, As a country, we tend to incarcerate people who are experiencing more chronic illnesses, so both physical and mental illnesses than we see in the general population. So we've got um, a particularly vulnerable group of people behind bars in prisons and in jails. Um, You know, in in prisons we're seeing uh, like asthma rates that are almost two times higher than in the general population. We're seeing HIV rates that are almost three times higher Heart conditions are also three times higher in prisons and jails. And um, other risk factors, even like cigarette smoking or history of smoking, um, is much more prevalent among people who are in prison. So we've got kind of this constellation of health concerns that already exist in this population that are likely not being addressed. And then we're introducing a respiratory virus that's extremely contagious and extremely deadly. So, so the people that are in there are already at risk. And then they can't even participate in the things that we've sort of established as ways to protect yourself. Social distancing is just not going to be possible across the board in prisons or jails. We're talking about dormitory style housing. Um, we're talking about beds that are three feet apart at best. Um, we're talking about, you know, one eating area in the cafeteria. So, so that's not happening. And then we're also... Um, seeing people struggling to get access to the things that they need and this was something we saw earlier in the pandemic but difficulty getting access to hand hygiene um you know rules about alcohol-based hand sanitizers uh difficulty getting access to masks because it's a security risk or, or things like that so all these things are playing into um sort of barriers i guess to incarcerated people you know protecting themselves but also you know surviving this pandemic if if they get the virus
2: it's incredible it's a total recipe for disaster obviously um emily i want to go back to the prison guards right and the and the, the corrections officers because at the, at the beginning there was this sort of misguided and obviously it's played out that way misguided policy of let's vaccinate them not worry about the prisoners and that will sort of form some type of uh, health buffer and and protect everybody. So if you could just talk a little bit more about about that that sort of approach, um, what happened and where are we at right now in terms of the vaccination rate among prison guards?
4: Yes. So I think that the initial ideas around vaccinating uh, Department of Corrections staff, prison staff, medical staff, all of those people are coming in and out of the facility um, was based on a couple of, Uh, factors that had already been sort of in play and then kind of faded out of play during the pandemic. So initially, a a lot of states made a move to stop admissions to prison. So instead of letting new folks enter prison, they're kind of keeping them in county jails. Um, So that created problems in county jails. Um, But then you're seeing that in those prisons, the only people exiting and entering are the staff. And so they become sort of unintentionally the people who are carrying that that risk of contagion. Um, so so once that happened, you can sort of see the, the the logical leap to saying, oh, let's vaccinate the staff first. However, by the time we started vaccinating people, I I think every prison system had resumed admissions. So we're no longer like, you know, some confined population. The population is changing. There's people coming in, there's people going out, there's people coming back in. So that's no longer like a feasible plan. Um, so When that changed, I think this vaccination rollout plan should have also changed in those states to say, okay, we need to vaccinate both the staff and the incarcerated folks at the same time. Um, It's it's been interesting to look at the acceptance rates of the vaccine uh, among correctional staff and also among the incarcerated population. So the median vaccination rate of prison staff across all the um, states that we could look at, which was about, I think, 36 states in the federal system for staff data um, the, the median was about 48% of staff were receiving that first dose or the Johnson and Johnson one dose. So that's like below half. Um, and, and for a population that we were initially considering to be some sort of protective, uh, wall between people behind bars and the general population, that's obviously not going to cut it. That's nowhere near herd immunity. And we don't even know what that's going to be for COVID. So it's just not even close. Um, you know, some states like Michigan and Alabama um, have, you know, just over 10 percent of their their prison staff vaccinated. And that's pretty frighteningly low. Um, and there were only four states that had um, over 70 percent of their staff vaccinated. So, again, that's good. But <laughs> the fact that it's only, you know, four states is pretty frightening. Um, yeah. So, so I think that that plan sort of hasn't really played out very well, especially as we continue to see um, case rates kind of climbing among incarcerated people and impacting staff as well, um, and continued COVID deaths behind bars in states where, you know, vaccinations have even started in prisons. You know, people are still dying of this disease, which, you know, we could really be reducing the number of people dying by, by COVID behind bars. We have that ability at this point.
3: Yeah, that's a that's a good point, especially because uh, people don't realize that this is a, a virtual death sentence for people who were potentially in in prison um, for a few years or whatever the case may be. Uh, Emily, just quickly, the last question um, that that I have is: I, uh, prison policy obviously did there. Uh, you guys did a report where you graded each state, and I think most states in the country received a failing grade. How has that the vaccine rollout potentially impacted? Um, Th- those calculations, if I don't know if you've done anything like that um, yet, if you've updated that report, but I'm just wondering if that's been, if that's part of your calculation going forward.
4: Yeah, we haven't updated that report where we sort of uh, divvied out those scores based on how folks uh, in these states were responding to COVID in prison. So we we looked at both population reduction as well as some other efforts like. Um, getting out PPE, uh, you know, personal protective equipment to staff and incarcerated people and all sorts of other, you know, criteria that we put into that. Um, I would expect that everybody would score a little bit higher if we kept those same uh, criteria, because things like getting out masks have become a, a lot more accessible than they were back over the summer. Um, but I think we would have to, you know, as you suggested, incorporate the vaccine rollout. And and given the fact that, um, we're still looking at just about half of the incarcerated population uh, is vaccinated, which is again, a good thing. We're, we're talking about a uh, a rate of vaccination that's very similar to the general US population, but to remember that this is a population that is particularly at risk for severe complications from COVID. So, so it, you can say yes, that 50%, 55% is similar to the general US population, but it's still really, really, really dangerous behind bars. Um, there's no socially isolating in your apartment because you're not vaccinated. you You can't. you're in you're in prison. So, so, I think if we were to incorporate that, we would have to weigh that a little bit more heavily than some of the yeah. other criteria at this point. and And I would expect that most states are still doing pretty poorly um, in addressing this. I mean, it's it's a population that um, legislators and and officials are often forgetting and often overlooking on purpose. Right. Um, so right. so it, it's it's almost impossible to see uh, prisons and jails addressing this in the way that has been recommended by policymakers and legis- uh, and lawyers and attorneys and all those folks on the ground doing the work, you know, and the people behind yeah. bars advocating for themselves. So they're just not yeah, listening. Definitely.
3: To and I think if you're watching, if anybody's watching, as opposed to the podcast, you can see that New York state has 20, I think it's 27%. Uh, vaccination, uh, rate and that, and, and New York, uh, was mandated by the court to perform vaccinations. It wasn't even a policy by legislators or the governor. So definitely important information from Emily. Emily, once again, uh, we always appreciate your time. And I just recommend everybody check out present prison policy, sign up for the newsletter because as a journalist, it's a, It's a a great resource to have, but also just for the general public, just to stay informed. I definitely um, suggest you do that. Emily, uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: One one time before we go, Emily. Manny, uh, thank you for that in-depth breakdown, obviously. Uh, Your work is super important, uh, noble, uh, and uh, worthy. One thing, I'm going to take it down to a real everyday person kind of level. Some of us have loved ones that are in prison, right? We have friends, family members, uh, and we know because from dispatches from the field, as it were, uh, that these conditions exist and that these uh, uh, problems still exist. That The vaccinations haven't rolled out to everybody. I know it seems daunting for a family member or the everyday person uh, to help affect the change. When you said lawyers, policymakers, you know, advocates, organizations are all doing the work to try to make these things uh, better. Um, what can the everyday person, the family member, the regular constituent uh, do to try to, uh, you know, affect the changes that are necessary to help uh, our, uh, our our incarcerated population, our friends, families and neighbors?
4: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think I, as I normally do, have two answers to that. One is sort of on an individual level. Um, I would really encourage folks who have access to a lot of information about vaccines and the risks and benefits of it, and and what it actually uh, entails, and all of that, I would really encourage those folks to talk to their loved ones behind bars. Because the reality is, it's it's very hard to imagine that um, public health education is a priority in prisons and jails. Um, you know, we've we've been hearing stories from people behind bars that there's sometimes a flyer about the J and J vaccine on a table, and then they're asked if they want it, and they say no because they don't know anything about it, or mm-hmm. they they watched one news episode where it talked about the risks of it, you know, so, so there's no, there's no consistent education. So, so that would be sort of one thing I would, you know, offer as sort of a tangible kind of quick step would be to just kind of offer some education, however you can, whether it's a phone call or an email, or if there's visitation available to do it that way. Um, I would sort of on a bigger scale, I think that's where, where it's a little less, uh, tangible to think about what what kind of changes we can make. Um, I would say that there are a lot of sort of grassroots organizations doing this work um, in tandem with sort of incarcerated activists um, about what they specifically need. And I think that that varies depending on the facility, depending on the state, depending on where they are with their vaccine rollout there. Like I said, there's some states that have done a pretty good job getting uh, vaccines available. so so they're going to be having different issues than, say, Utah that has. 7% of their incarcerated population vaccinated. So I right. would encourage folks who are looking to help their loved ones, their friends and family to to reach out to those local um, prison rights uh, organizations to see kind of what it is that they're asking for on the ground and how we can sort of support that, whether that's, you know, sending a letter to the warden or sending a letter to the sheriff, or if it's something uh, bigger than that, then, you know, they'll be aware of that on the ground. But I think it's Same thing with the policies. It's so uh, disparate between places that it's hard to know from like a national perspective where to kind of insert ourselves to help support, you know, our, the people we care about.
0: Now that's, that's valuable information. I appreciate that. Thank you, Emily.
3: Thank you guys for having me. Thank you, Emily. Take care. Thank you so much.
0: All right. Once again, what we, we find out that the answer very often can be local you know, can be uh, in your jurisdiction and your, you know, as a local constituent, as a local person. Uh, You know, like I said, we have loved ones that are in jail, some of us, uh, and we want to help, but we know that we're just a person linking up with a local organization that's doing the work on the ground in that particular state, for example, could be a a way to uh, add fuel to that important fire. So thank you, Emily. Uh, Thank you, gentlemen, for conducting a great uh, interview.
3: All right. Uh, yeah, we really appreciate Emily. And again, just like I recommend everybody check out Prison Policy, a lot of great information there um, on the criminal justice system. And speaking of that system, um, we have our next guest. I think he's ready to go. And that's Daniel Nikanian, the founder and editorial director of the Appeal Political Report. Daniel, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, for
5: And it's and it's great to be here after uh, Emily in particular, because as, as a reporter and editor, uh, PPI's work is always so essential, and their data, their sources, their their, their research to anything we do at the Appeal. And, and so it's great to be able to be here after her.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I was I was saying the same thing. that It's an incredible resource to have for anybody. Um, Daniel, we really appreciate you taking your time out tonight, um, especially in light of last night's Democratic primary in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, concerning the the district attorney race there. Um, uh, Can you, just for some of our viewers and listeners who might not be too familiar with the local politics there, and Larry Krasner specifically, can you just talk about sort of who he is, the unusual route that um, he took to become DA, which is already a sort of often obscured role in our politics, um, and how he sort of rose to fame?
5: Sure, uh, so it's it's a very interesting moment right now for, for DA politics, for criminal justice politics. Um, so just the, the big picture first for people who may not know who even Larry Krasner is. So in 2017, um, in the DA race, the race for chief prosecutor in Philadelphia, Larry Krasner uh, won the primary and then the election, and that was very unusual because uh, he had no experience himself as a prosecutor or in law enforcement writ large. He, his, his own experience was as a, um, as a criminal defense attorney and a civil rights attorney. And he really ran, and he actually had already clashed for a long time with uh, law enforcement, had had filed lawsuits against law enforcement in Philly. Um, and so his election was really a catalyst for a lot of conversations nationally around the role that prosecutors can play in changing the criminal legal system from the inside. You know, he's not the first person who ran on, um, on criminal justice reform in a DA race, but the fact that he was such an outsider to the system, in fact, the fact that he had spent his career fighting the system kind of changed the expectations of what is even possible to talk, talk about in these elections. Um, and, uh, and over the past four years, Krasner has sort of remained kind of an emblem for the national effort to use DA offices to really change the criminal legal system. Frankly, both for its proponents. I've talked to so many candidates for for prosecutor around the country over the past three years who have specifically said that Krasner's victory was inspiring to them. Um, A lot of people who aren't prosecutors themselves, who, who pointed to that victory as a reason why they thought it was even a thing for them to run for prosecutor, but also for, right. for the opponents of the criminal legal uh, for, of reform. Um, Bill Barr under, uh, under the Trump years often quoted, often pointed to Krasner as an example of the reform movement run amok. Um, a lot of people in the police union, the, the police union in Philly was very, very uh, hostile to Krasner and fought him for four years. And then that brings us to the election this week. Uh, to, 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 to cut a long story short, when Krasner faced a former prosecutor who he himself had fired, effectively as soon as he came into office, Krasner fired some prosecutors, effectively saying your 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 approach, your practices have been too in line with uh, a very punitive approach, and um, he fired them. And then one of them ran ran against him this year. Carlos Vega attracting support from the police union locally, and just a lot of attention nationally. A lot of a lot of articles written about whether the progressive movement is running out of breath, stuff like that. And then the result yesterday was that Krasner won six, with sixty-five percent of of the vote. So that's kind of the uh, the arc of what just happened yesterday. Um, and and yeah, it, it's a big deal for these conversations around what around criminal justice reform right now.
2: Thanks, Daniel. And um, now you and your colleagues have done a great job, really, of detailing why this election is important from a policy perspective. Um, You know, whether it's dismissing criminal charges for drug possession, reducing the number of people under community supervision or overturning past criminal convictions. So I was wondering if you could if you could talk a little bit about these policies in the context of his reelection and to the extent to which his primary opponent wanted to roll them back.
5: Yeah, that's a particularly great question when it comes to the elections because we are not used to talking about the policy that that these people implement, right? It's um, it's often just about people for a long time just ran on things like I'm going to be fair or I'm going to be tough, uh, and that's kind of the all all. all all that we got from from prosecutors. And so it's very important for for me and for our work at the appeal to really drill drill down and explain to people, this is what a prosecutor does, this is what the prosecutor changes. So some some of the examples you just mentioned are are great examples. So one thing, for instance, that Krasner has done in office is uh, effectively drop almost all, a growing share of the charges for drug possession. Effectively, he's saying that Drug possession and addiction is not something for the criminal legal system to be involved with. That that only makes makes things worse. That addiction, uh, bringing addiction into the court system like that, is going to make things worse. And and he's and the uh, the data we ran a, a chart of of the soaring share of of cases dropped for drug possession under Krasner's office. That is that is really. In and of itself, a telling illustration, uh, I don't have it obviously uh, next to me, but a telling illustration of, of just what a DA can do. And that's something, for instance, that, that Carlos Vega um, was talking about using other ways of avoiding jail time or prison mm-hmm. time and putting people in what's called drug, drug, drug courts, which are still a form of prosecution. But that was a form of, of contrast, for instance, that came up. Another form of contrast that came up was that DAs can protect immigrants from various sorts of immigration consequences. When, it, when it, someone who's not a citizen comes into contact with law enforcement or the court system, that can have very, very bad consequences for their immigration status um, if they're legal um, and for and, and for their deportation if, if they're not. And, and Krasner had created an office within the DA's, DA's office to, uh, to find ways to charge people or sentence people in a way that would circumvent the... the immigration consequences, right? So those are um, specific, kind of specific examples of just sort of powers that judges have. Obviously, then we can talk about um, seeking lower sentences, seeking lower bail for people to avoid pre-trial detention, all sorts of things. And Ve- Vega's argument really was Krasner's attempts to lower incarceration were going to harm the city. That was effectively a, a tough-for-on-crime argument, though And I will end here. What's interesting in the election really I think is that Vega in some ways was not fully embracing that old school tough on crime message. He was running with the support of the police union and he was having all this like national coverage of whether reform versus tough on crime is more appropriate but in, in a lot of the things he said, he wasn't fully embracing the idea that he wanted to reverse Krasner's policies, as though the movement has come so far, the conversation has come so far that we're no longer in twenty seventeen or in twenty thirteen, and those same arguments will no will no longer hold sway.
3: Yeah, uh, Daniel, I'm gra- glad you picked. Uh, you mentioned that. Just I don't think you can underscore enough or exaggerate the the role that the union played in trying to. Knockout Krasner in the primary. Um, they even did some gimmicky stuff that I think people chuckled out like the Mr. Softy thing outside um, his office. Right. Um, but it's interesting, as you just mentioned, this is a de- another Democrat that they were supporting that potentially if it's Democrat Republican, they might pull their uh, endorsement just because of the actual policies um, that are more aligned with um this 2021 version of criminal justice. Um so just from the political aspect, I don't know what observers are saying, but do they see as the police unions um power sort of diminished in selecting candidates and effectively you know making them the the DA because a lot of times historically that's what would happen. But we're not but that may have been um impacted by a lot of these progressive prosecutors running. What do you what do you think about that?
5: I mean, listen. On on the one hand, we have obviously come come to a point where it's become obvious that that a lot of arguments that four years ago would have would have seemed like non starters in in elections are actually very successful. We, we've seen that. Um, and I think that that's well. That's what's important to add to the context that I've said so far, especially for people who haven't followed this this movement very closely. Right. That in in the time between twenty seventeen Krasner's first election and today, it's it's been a sea change around the country. Um, that just over the past couple of years, people who have won on platforms similar to Krasner um, have, include places like uh, L.A., places like um, New Orleans, Ann Arbor, uh, parts of Arizona and Virginia. Um, parts of Massachusetts, a lot of of, uh, different cities, a lot of suburban areas. And and so the context has changed a lot, right? On the other hand, we are still in a place where the mere fact that the police union is attacking someone, the mere fact that prosecutors within a DA's office is attacking the elected prosecutor is in and of itself enough to generate a wave of coverage um, Mm. that that talks about it um the coming uh the the anxieties of uh towards criminal justice reform as though we were still in the 80s um and and that and that's also a reality like we, we, we we really are seeing that right now in la where um george gascon who's the elected da of la who just won in november uh ousting the incumbent da there in november on a platform that that's you know broadly speaking, let's say similar to, similar to Krasner's, if not on, on some aspects goes further. Um, he has faced a lot of resistance from people who are already in the office. And if you look at the media coverage in LA, there's this like drip, drip. There's this drip, drip of of ADA's, assistant prosecutors, people in the sh- sheriff department um, who are getting emotional in, in, in interviews with the media about the fact that they're no longer able to seek as high sentences or as high bail. And that in and of itself is a story, right? This prosecutor who is getting te- 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 teary, teary about not being able to seek the death penalty in a case. So that in and of itself is still is still there. And the the expectation that Krasner would get more trouble than he ended up getting in the primary is indicative mm-hmm. of that. Right. So.
2: right. And Daniel, since this was such an issue, um, I mean, just overall and affected so many people, and obviously, uh, as in, in the election, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the homicide spike in 2020, right? So obviously, opponents are going to blame that on progressive prosecutors, but what do the criminologists say about this, or, or what does the data point to so far? I know it's very early.
5: Yeah, I think the I think the this this is going to not be the uh, an answer that is still very <laughs> satisfying, but but the answer seems to be that it's. As often with things that involve the crime rate going up or down, that uh, there are no easy answers, and that and that studies are, are not not very clear about what about about what is behind it. What 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 is clear in many ways is that the the spike in violence and crime is impacting cities uh, around the country, whether or not they're being governed by uh, one of the DAs that I just mentioned, um, including including in the few cities. Um, I saw some t- statistics last week. There's there's only a few cities that have Republican uh, that have Republicans at the head, but those also have experienced uh, um, spiking crime. But I think what's very and, and obviously this this was a major issue in the Philadelphia race, and will continue to be an issue in, in all these elections as uh, as it should be very important very important things to talk about. Obviously, um, but I think what's important I think some of the some of where the conversation doesn't really quite make sense how it's happening is that. Um, the the conversation sometimes it looks as though people think that that criminal justice reform that people only argue for criminal justice reform when crime is low when the lot when men, when a lot of the arguments for reform for for abolition for any for wherever you are on that spectrum is that the, is that the conventional approaches to incarceration and policing have have failed at creating a safe society right um, and 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 so it's not that. It's not that contrast reformers are throwing their hands hands in the air and are saying, "Oh, the crime crime is fighting, so it's no no longer our turn." On the contrary, a lot of the argument for people like Krasner right now is that it's the way in, is that it's a mass incarceration, the way in which we have that has impoverished entire communities, uh, that has put people in in great in, in great straits. that all, all that all of that has something to do with how we think about safety. As well, I mean, for instance, at some point, one of you mentioned probation rates in 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 Philly, and that's that's a very important thing to think about because Philly has one of the highest rates of probation in the country. So that means people who aren't in prison, so we don't really count them as incarcerated. Well, they're not; they shouldn't be counted as incarcerated, but yet they're under uh, extreme amounts of supervision, and at the slightest trip up. They, they they can be sent back to jail, so, right? That the, the those sort of uh, approaches to how we think about crime and safety, the argument goes to people like Krasner, are are part and are, are part of what is has caused American society to to be broken in many ways. Um, so so I think that that and that's what's played and that's what's, play, and, and that's what's play, playing out right now. It's not an argument of whether it's an argument of what is the best solution to these problems of violence right and uh, and Krasner got 80 85% yesterday in um for instance in 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 Philadelphia Blackwards um he he got support kind of a lot in a lot of the in a lot of the cities. so that's important to think about in terms of who who, who is supporting him and what what sort of arguments are resonating
3: I uh, really appreciate that that answer, Daniel. Because just it's a, a lot of people sometimes when they're reading about crime stats, they it's often missing the context and how difficult it is to actually give a reason why stats are going up or down or or whatever. So really appreciate that. Um, just the last question because I know we're going over. Um, we obviously Chris mentioned a lot of the policies that that Krasner has enacted um, during his time as DA. What has he promised going forward?
5: Yeah, um, I think another. I'm not necessarily aware of things he has promised that are necessarily different than than what he's doing. I think an interesting way to about it is that there's a lot of space to his left, right? It's not I think mm-hmm. the way in which this ends up being covered is that there's Krasner, the radical DA, and then there's like <laughs> the police union and conservative and the Trump administration and dope are attacking him. And so that's how I presented it as well, right? But um if you look look, look if you look, look look at how the very community organizations and grassroots groups uh like Reclaim Philly, the Abolitionist Law Center, a lot of groups are based in Philly and are very active. Um, The the Bell Fund in Philly, um, a lot of the groups that were very active in making the case that his policies are important to to keep going forward have also been critics of his in many ways over the past past few years, uh, saying that he hasn't gone far enough in in cutting pretrial detention, for instance, Um, saying he hasn't gone far enough in protecting all immigrants from that's something I was talking about earlier, as something he he is extending to some to some de- defendants, but not uh, but not all. Um, also, um, I mean, in, on, on probation, there's there's a lot of room to go further if you're talking about criminal justice reform. And I mean, we, we, what we're seeing around the country right now is many prosecutors who, in part, inspired by Larry Krasner, have run on platforms that go beyond that go beyond what well, what he has proposed, right on. Like in uh, New York City, has a DA race in in a month, in uh, and and ma- many of the candidates there are saying are are effectively have proposed lists of low level offenses that they will that, that that they won't charge at all, that they will not prosecute at all. So there's a lot of different things that are happening around the country that are that are changing the conversation. Um, and I don't want to say that I've left Krasner behind because that's not quite the right way to say it, but have that have that opened a lot of space to his left to have more conversations over the next four years. Um, and I will what I will add one one thing, which is that Progressive actually had, a we, we, we've been focused on the DA race here, but pro- progressives had very good nights in Philly in other races as well, especially, which is very relevant here, um, elections for judge, elections for local judge. And I, I mentioned that because judges in Philly, in some cases, have blocked some of the proposals, some of the efforts for by, by Krasner to lower bail or sentences in some cases, and uh, groups and Progressive groups in Philly were really focused this year on on judge elections and endorsed a bunch of uh, candidates. And seven of the eight candidates for local judge that they endorsed to won yesterday as well. So that could also maybe change change the dynamic, the system, the structure that Krasner is in, because it's not really about what he himself is doing, right? It's about the system is in and what different parts of the system are doing to one another. Uh, and 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 there's new opportunities for that conversation over the next four years.
3: Great. Thanks for bringing that up, because that's another aspect, obviously, that's overlooked um, when we talk about criminal justice and uh, elections. Uh, Daniel, again, we really appreciate your insights. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show. And just like we did at Prison Policy, uh, policy, we recommend everybody check out the appeal. Um, Your entire team does magnificent work over there actually covering the policies. Um, So we really appreciate your insights, and thank you again for coming on. Thank you
0: so much. There it is. Yeah, the appeal.org is where you got to go. So, uh yeah. get on it people.
3: All right. Another we got two interesting conversations back to back. Um just and,
0: incredible. And I, I threw
3: way. a lot at people.
0: This is to me, as I mentioned before, the fact the focus on local elections that all politics are local but that you can make change that's significant uh by paying attention to your local elections, local DAs, local judges, It's not just that every four-year cycle for the regular, everyday day. I've been guilty of it throughout my life, so I know that others are as well. This conversation emphasizes how important, if you're interested in these ideas, these reforms, these progressive ideas, that local elections are extremely important, and uh, we will continue to follow them. Uh, We covered this a couple of, I don't know how long ago, but a while ago, uh, tee up the Law & Order episode.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. So, uh, man, I don't even remember. I, this is when Chase Abedin, I think, was running, or this was right before. Yeah. So it was a couple right. of years yeah. ago. Um, so, yeah, we covered sort of. This was basically. This is maybe. I, I, I guess I like to brag and tell people that we were way ahead
0: of all this conversation years ago. So it's fine that it's. all.
3: Well, like, I think we, we. I think we got we, there we just sort the progressive prosecutor thing was it was coming to life, right? Um, and it's actually we were so early that. Some of them don't even like to be called progressive prosecutors. They like to be called reform prosecutors. Uh, But obviously that happened after we started covering it. Um, But basically we were just giving people um, an overview of district attorneys, um, as Daniel was talking about, just the importance of focusing on those elections because oftentimes, and this is mentioned in that that episode, and I actually urge everybody to check it out. um, It's the idea that DAs are often reelected without even having an opponent. So you'll have some DAs who are in office for like two decades, three decades, never actually having a challenger. Um, and right. obviously one more thing before you play the clip is that a lot of DAs historically have been um, white men. So they didn't represent um, the city or the community that they were. They yeah. charge up. I don't, I don't have a clip. Oh, no. I don't have a clip. Okay. I'm, so just I tell everybody play. to go. We could, no, no, no. We'll just drop a link in there and let everybody go listen to the whole thing. Okay. yeah.
0: So just reminding people that we are a podcast that covers a lot of these topics, sort of in a document, document, documentary uh, fact. I'm just going to play a little bit. This is this is what a Newsbeat episode sounds like. Just a snippet. Black chief executive.
1: Most people that are in jail are at the county or local level. So that's why it's so necessary to not only elect prosecutors who share a reformist mindset, but to also elect Mayors and sheriffs and city council members, as well as folks in the state government who actually share our values on criminal justice. We want to move away from this dated model of a prosecutor who goes on and gets elected by spouting tough on crime rhetoric. And we want folks who have a sensible approach to criminal justice reform that helps people move through a system and out of a system into a society that will allow them to be their best selves. Let me state the plan is simple. Whatever booth I may get into, it's basically the same principles. Study the issues, plus I listen to my heart. So recording booth, the voting booth, it's saw the same start. That means the same foundation, the same driving force. I kind of thought that should be common and he thought but I guess it's not though. Just look inside the courts. If that's a microcosm, you know we gotta sort. That's our collective moral compass. But when it seems to not function, it's like we barely even seem to budget. No one opposes. It's like we incumbent. A lot of people don't know we could do something Like I could talk about injustice But you know the problems and the fixes You injustice If we can't trust the ones that send power Then maybe we could rally the troops And hold them out of it My name is Mark Woo.
0: Fire, more fire All the fire
3: Uh Sage um tells me that that was October 2018 And I it makes sense because Silent Night Sounds like a younger man <laughs>
0: silent night has (laughs) aged tremendously during the pandemic i think i I think we've
3: stressed him out with all our content i think if you if you listen to the
0: the most recent episode he sounds like marge simpson it's crazy (laughs) i'm silent night you heard me in it and i'm like that's usk yeah it's me it's the same guy from before when i did the episode it's really it's really it's it's hit him hard we love him shouts to our artists and (laughs) residents uh silent night uh, ripping and rocking, uh, that's how Newsbeat does. We interview the activists, the experts, the analysts, the academics, the uh, authors, the journalists, and those affected by injustice directly. We throw it over all, uh, we smack it, flip it, rub it down all over a bed of music, and then periodically throughout the episodes, we hear from brilliant independent artists like Silent Night our Artists and residents, who personify and amplify and smack an exclamation point on the issues by compellingly translating it to hip hop lyrical form it makes for an incredibly compelling award-winning if you didn't know now you know podcast called newsbeat so if you're watching us on the video tip please do subscribe to newsbeat wherever you find podcasts or go to usnewsbeat.com links are there Uh, but that was our introduction to the topic i found it very interesting as a layman uh, someone who just you know pays attention to politics pretty you know, pretty intensely, but forgetting, I'm guilty of it like y'all are, do not forget that the way to make change effectively in criminal justice reform and some of these issues can start with your local elections. DAs, as you mentioned, are elected locally. They often run without an, without a, 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 without opposition, but you know what? You could back somebody to oppose them there are organizations in your city town county government whatever legislation where they're trying to make these changes happen look into them find them seek them out throw your weight as a grown-up as a as a citizen as a as a as an adult let's do some adulting and get involved with the political system on a local basis Uh, things can happen uh, as we have seen
3: so, and uh, also just on top of that, it's also maintaining the pressure too. So, you elect somebody like um, Larry Krasner, Chase Abadim, we mentioned, um, Wesley Mo- uh, Morris. Um, and now we're seeing, as uh, Daniel mentioned, that there's efforts to sort of um, take away some of their powers, which DA's. Previously, never really complained about, you know, these tough on crime DAs loved h- having all the power, but now they want to strip people like George Gascon in, in LA of certain pol- uh, of powers to prevent them from carrying out his agenda. Uh, we also see in San Francisco um, yep. efforts to recall Chase Boudin, right? So That's it's correct. also staying engaged after the fact, to, you know, to make sure that you don't lose sight of what's going to happen. I think I, we've said it on this show before in a newsbeat that it's a lot of work just to get some of these minor policies passed um, in in, with regards to criminal justice. So by, you know, ignoring it, by, you know, getting your, your preferred candidate elected, and then potentially you're tired, you're exhausted from all the fighting. um, And that's understandable. um, And we, we all get it, but that's the, that's the, you know, you got to keep up the pressure. And I think that's um, apparent with what happened in, in Philly where you had Larry Krasner, uh, winning his primary overwhelmingly.
0: Yeah, well, we'll so. see. Well, genius minds think alike. Uh, we'll 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 see what happens with that. Uh, I need to alert our live audience and, of course, our podcast listening audience that a, a very disheartening thing has happened here in the studio. Uh, we're very sad to report that Chris T has disappeared. Now, this is really. That's the comment we're going to show. Well, listen, you know what I say? So, and, of course, we're showing is a comment uh, that's a bot, clearly a bot. So you know you're famous when the bots start jumping in on your stream. Uh, maybe this is – save that screenshot because we don't know what happened to Chris. Now, this is what's crazy. Our next segment, Dead Ad, <laughs> we're going to talk about UFOs. Now, it's not just a casual conversation amongst friends, us and y'all. But there's a social justice component, in some ways, to (laughs) the UFOs. And y'all might have seen 60 Minutes this week. And there was a thing. And there's a thing coming next month. There's a whole bunch of things happening about UFOs. Some of that is tied to government uh, relief for the COVID pandemic. There's a whole thing going on. And Chris, because we love Chris for some of the work he does, in a, in a in a realm of reality that we're not always dancing in
3: i mean and it's a it's not i don't even know if you call it a realm his expertise I don't know what it is
0: his expertise is in some of these fringe quote unquote but also the tv show uh, scientific uh, unknown parallels things that are happening in and out of our direct eyesight uh, and UFOs or UAPs, as they're often known, uh, was one of them, and we were going to discuss it. And then, suddenly
3: <laughs> Chris what are the dis- chances? Minutes before, like seconds before, you were about to throw it to I, him. I, I mean, I, can like, we get him on the phone? What can we do? I mean, you're the tech, you're the producer. I don't know. Can we get him on the? I might be able on the to. Uber conference. Yeah, I mean,
0: you want to try to set it up because. This is not a, this is not a, uh, <laughs> this is not a, a bit. We're not, he disappeared.
3: No, this is not a, this is not a, <laughs> it's not that we don't know what happened to him, why he was, his connection was cut. We don't know where he is.
5: We don't know what happened to him. He literally we
3: disappeared. No, we could try to call him, but we otherwise don't have any contact with Chris. I
0: know, I know we're out of control right now. But, Chris, Chris Sawarski, we don't know where you are, Ski. Listen, you are live on this week in social justice. We've patched you in. Yeah, we are live. We patched you in via the satellite phone. Yeah,
1: I got you. We patched you in, bro. I got the I got the bat phone.
3: I can't hear. him. I can't hear. him.
0: Hold on, hold on. Oh, okay, I can hear you. Can you hear me? We are live. Rashid, can you hear him?
3: I can't hear Chris. I can only hear you. The tech wizardry, the the whoever has taken Chris has is preventing him from being He the
0: window and there was a flash of light. <laughs>
3: <laughs> All right. We'll save it for the next show, I think. It's a good tease That's for cool. next week. We'll save it for the next show. There is
0: a social justice and/or uh, government political connection uh, with UFOs. It's important. It's a great topic. I'm really upset we couldn't get into it tonight, but that is what happens. Obviously. They're trying. To, they're trying to get
3: us. They're always watching, and we don't know who they is. Obviously, the government. You yeah, know, other powers that be. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's do it for our next show. It's all good. I think we have enough time until this. Um, famed report is going to come out. I don't know if it's going to be, everything's going to be redacted except for the letters E.T. Yeah. I mean, to, no. the short question, the short
0: question, the short answer is there is a bit of money that was uh, put aside in the COVID relief package to look at whether or not essentially, I mean, this is, super simplified, whether UFOs are real. Now, you might have seen 60 Minutes last Sunday uh, posed a, uh, this line of questioning. They talked to military officials that have reported and seen uh, you know, anomalies. Uh, they've showed video. There's some clips. There's some things that are happening. What's, this is, and this is nothing new. This has been happening for decades and decades. What's new is that they are incorporating this into a report that was commissioned to find out whether there's actually some credence to this, which is I think coming out in June. Chris, I
3: hear you. Is that correct? (laughs) I love Chris is just in your ear. He's just going to take over your, he's going to take over your body. He he says, is this the
0: coincidence? That's really weird. We were planning this whole uh, discussion, but we will find Chris. We will protect him. Uh, We will protect Chris at, all costs, and come back next week. On uh, this week at social justice to talk about the connection of UFOs slash UAPs to the COVID relief fund, and we will then be a step
3: closer to finding out if indeed that's interesting. I think uh, Sage I think thinks Chris was it. taken to camp to camp hero.
0: It's your man, many faces. You man ever shed me on. And the somewhere Chris Dawarski from Newsbeat and this week of social justice. Uh, This is what we brought to you tonight. Thank you to our amazing guests uh, who we had on tonight discussing Emily Weidra, research analyst at Prison Policy Initiative, uh, who broke down the uh, tragic story. We're joking now, but obviously it was serious earlier and it remains serious. The issue of our incarcerated brethren and sistren uh, facing Increased exposure and sickness and death due to COVID, yet not receiving the same attention that other uh, populations, including our nursing homes and our elderly, when it comes to vaccinations and protections. We spoke about, like I said, I have family members that are in prison right now that are literally saying, hey, we're dying in here. What can we do? Her advice, find your local grassroots on the ground prison initiative, just like the prison policy initiative is sort of an overarching look. There are local organizations that can help that uh, issue. Uh, Daniel Nakanian, director of the Appeal Political Report, a great website, theappeal.org, breaking down all of the ramifications, ins and outs, inside and outside of Uh, progressive or reform district attorney races, including the uh, well-known and well-publicized Philadelphia race. Uh, So if you're just catching at the end, uh, rewind and come again, you know, go back to the beginning. Uh, You can also find this on our podcast feed. We are at usnewsbeat.com to get the links. uh, But wherever you find uh, podcasts, we're there to... Two, um, two words, one love. Newsbeat by Maury Creative Studios. Shouts to Maury Creative Studios and the many Faces Media uh, teams who help put the podcasts and this uh, broadcast together. Uh, we'll be back uh, probably next week uh, with all likelihood. Uh, I have a granddaughter that is uh, on the precipice of entering the world, so I don't quite know when I'm going to be here or there, but. You know, I'm just sharing that with y'all because you love us as people, not just presenters of interesting information. Uh, Rochette, anything else? Am I forgetting? Should I?
3: Uh, uh um, somehow we failed to mention that the Knicks are the fourth seed in the Easter Conference. Um,
0: obviously, we're saving the best for last.
3: Uh, go yeah, uh, New York go Tuesday. New York. I'll be, at, I'll be, at, I'll be at game two. So there's no telling if I'll be back for Wednesday's show. Um, I guess I could do it from wherever Chris is if they could find me. Nice. And, uh, I'll be.
0: Hold on. The pyramids of Mars have great. <laughs> this is what I'm hearing from Chris. Uh, I'll be in Atlanta visiting my newly birthed grandchild during the first couple of games. So I will be uh, probably 100%. getting. A, I'm just. I'm just saying it'll, it's probably going to happen. Uh, it's anyway, how
3: that works out too. It's really crazy, right?
0: So anyway, yes. Go New York. Go New York. Go. Uh, wearing my Knicks colors. Shouts to the homeboys, man, even though they're Mets colors, but they're also Knicks colors. I'm wearing his hat. Uh, and uh, that's it. We're out of here for the day. Uh, shouts to Kitty Bradshaw uh, rocking with us. Shouts to my man, Coleman. I love you, brother. Keep your head up. We're working for you. Uh, shouts to uh, Dr. Raphael Travis uh, in the mix uh, watching us tonight. Uh, shouts to Sage on the back end helping us out. Shouts to, again, Mori Creative Studios, Many Faces Media, uh, everybody who helps put the podcast and the show together. Find out more about us, usnewsbeat.com. Uh, you'll get our regular episodes. You'll get our kind of uh, Cinco de Mayo episode, which was a departure from what we do. We are bringing you truth, uh, justice, and the uh, American Dream. Thing. I don't know. <laughs> <can> I, say? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so, Yeah, so shouts to Chris Dawarski. Uh, I hope you are not uh, sitting in a bathtub somewhere filled with ice cubes with one uh, kidney missing. Uh, I did it voluntarily. I hope that you have not been taken and you're being probed right now. We'll come back next week and talk about social justice and again,
1: UFOs. Who else does that? Newsbeat, this week is social justice. You may have many faces. We're out. Peace and love.